Today, uh, the preaching comes from 1 Timothy, a few uh, sections, and so if you would open your Bibles with me, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, and then some sections from chapter 6. Let me begin us, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's not a very happy note to begin on, but let's continue. Uh, chapter 6, verse uh, 6. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And finally, jump with me to verse 17 of the same chapter. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, I want to thank you for having me this morning. I love preaching at Baptist churches because you sing so well. Um, I'm a Presbyterian minister. That might tell you something. <laughs> it's, uh, and so I love being here with you all. And today... Uh, at the men's retreat, we were working through the uh, letter of 1 Timothy. And so that's why we land here. And I want to address a topic that is so important. The Bible, especially the New Testament, does not stop talking about this topic of money. But in my experience, there are a few topics that make people very uncomfortable. What might come to mind? One is parenting. Parents are very sensitive when you offer gratuitous feedback, right? Parents know that. Another uncomfortable topic could be gender identity, especially nowadays. But there is, in my opinion, no topic more uncomfortable than the topic of money. And even now, as we make mention of it, some of you might be feeling antsy. But let me assure you, um, I'm not here to take anything from you. That's one of the advantages of having a guest speaker. A guest speaker can come and speak, and you know I have no vested interest here. Right? It's not like uh, the amount you give during tithing affects my, you know, pay or anything like that. Not Nothing at all. But you see, the advantage of being guest speakers, you come, you speak, if the topic offends, you disappear, and, you know, we see each other in heaven, but otherwise, everyone is, everyone is fine, right? But I want to encourage you, this topic, 
I remember this elder said this to me. Of all people, an elder said this to me. It was about 10 years ago. He said this to me. He said, I don't think a preacher should ever address the topic of money. And I said, why not? He said, this is a private matter between a person and God. And that's, that's an interesting comment because I do think, aside from the fact that that reflects the individualism of Western evangelical culture, it's just this random idea. And so I asked this elder, where did you get that idea? And he said, everyone knows that. I was like, well, <laughs> that's news to me. And so I want to encourage you, if you would just give uh, the Bible hearing this morning, as we consider this very important topic of money, and uh, I want to, this is why, this is just one preliminary remark. I mentioned this book during the uh, men's retreat. It's an excellent book. Uh, it's entitled Ordinary. It's written by Michael Horton. This is why I think this book is very, very important. You see, you and I, we live in a day where it's not okay. It's not okay to be ordinary. And I think everyone feels this way. You can't have a normal wedding anymore. It must be epic. You can't be sort of successful. You need to be the next founder of like a, the next tech company. So we have this culture of being radical and extraordinary. And one of the things that Michael Horton talks about in his book is this. That culture of being extraordinary has spilled over into Christianity. And so for many Christians nowadays, they get, they get restless. They feel like, unless I do the next big and great thing for the Lord, I'm wasting my life. They suppose that, okay, right now I'm a consultant, but if I really want to live for Jesus, I need to go to seminary. And I need to, you know, become a pastor or a church planter or become a missionary in China. It's always China for some reason, right? And, um, and then I have lived for the Lord. So you, you see, we live in this culture of being extraordinary, even in our spirituality. What Dr. Horton suggests is that we should first excel at the ordinary things that God has called us to. And I want to challenge you today, right, that... Before you even aspire to do great and grand things for God, excel in the ordinary call to tithe and be generous. I, want, I just want to put that out there today. My main challenge to you, my main invitation, right, is don't be radical. Don't be extraordinary. Don't worry about changing the world for God because you cannot. Instead, Try to obey the things that he has called us to do and see what extraordinary things God does through your ordinary obedience. And specifically, today I want to just give you something very concrete to consider. Uh, tithing is giving, let's just say it loosely, 10% to your local church. And if you're a member, that should be basic. And being generous uh, should be basic to being a Christian. So that's the invitation I want to give to you. And I want to present three points to you. So this is the first point. Money, the love of money, is a powerful, is a powerful and deceitful force. That's number one. The love of money, or money in general, right, is a powerful and deceitful force. Number two 
what practical steps can we take to overcome the power of money? What are some practical steps? And then finally, number three, how does the gospel of Jesus enable us to actually take these steps? Okay, again, those three simple reflections along this main invitation. Okay, number one, money is a force to be reckoned with. It's deceitful and powerful. Number two, um, what practical steps can we take to overcome the power of money? And number three, how does the gospel enable us? And so first, look with me at chapter 6, verse 9 one more time, 9 and 10. Notice the language that the Apostle Paul uses here. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into temptation. And then immediately, he qualifies temptation in this way. He says, into a snare. And then verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Wandered away from the faith. So two things. Number one, how money is deceitful. You see, the reason why Paul uses the term snare, right, is because I'm not going to pretend um, I'm handy. Uh, I'm the kind of guy you don't want to go camping with because I'm very useless. And so I'm not going to suggest that I really know anything about nature and survival, right? But I have heard when you go hunting or when you are trying to capture an animal, maybe a raccoon, you want to use a trap that is what? Hidden. It has to be duplicitous. It has to be almost secretive in order for the snare to work. And what Paul is highlighting here is that the love of money has a strange way of making people blind. Let me say this one more time. Money, unlike anything else, has this uncanny ability to blind us to reality. Did you get that? Or simply put, this is what I say to my members all the time. Money makes people funny. Money makes people funny. And let me illustrate it in a few ways, all right? One is this. <clears throat> Even now, as you are sitting here, you might be thinking, hmm, this is a really good topic. Money makes people funny. You know, it, it's powerful. And you're thinking, I know someone who needs to listen to this right? But the last person you're thinking about is what? Yourself, right? Because that's what money does to us. It makes us think, yes, this is a real issue, and I know so many people that struggle with it, but you, you never think that you struggle with it. You know what's interesting as a pastor? This is a very interesting as a pastor, and all the more as a retreat speaker. So I've spoken at a lot of retreats, and <laughs> this is the best way I can put it. When you speak at a retreat, most of the times, they treat you like a wizard. And this is what I mean. Uh, they come to you, and they confess the most outrageous things you can imagine. And I always ask, have you told your pastor? Have you told your elder? And they're like, why would we do that? And I'm like, why would you not do that? Why are you telling me? And they said, well, you know, you're the speaker. And so I wish away their sin. I, I don't know what to do in those instances. But I have heard, I have heard people confess so many different sins, you, you name it, to the point that nothing surprises me, that it just comes with the territory. However, isn't this interesting? In my 20 years of ministry, maybe 0.7 persons, right, has come to me and said, I struggle with money. I struggle with being greedy. I think about money too often. I spend too much on myself. 
You see, friends, that's what Paul means when he says, money has this weird way of blinding us, right? Think about it like this, some of you in this room, right? Have you noticed that you rarely meet a person who thinks he makes too much? This is what happens when you make money. You never think about the people that make less than you. You're always looking at the people who have more, and this is the strange thing. You conclude that you must be poor. You must be poor. I'm from New York City, and I have some friends who are unusually successful in the financial sector. They are unusually successful. And sometimes they ask me, you know, should we go to ministry? I say, no, stay where you are and just send your money to my church. <laughs> but um, it's very interesting to listen to them talk about money. Because they'll say things like, oh, my bonus this year. It's a little lower than usual. This year it's only 100000 And um, you see, that's what money does. It blinds us. Let me just give you two more examples because I want you not just to hear it when the Bible says money makes you funny, money blinds. I want you to see it. Some of you are sitting in this room and you might suppose this. You might think that the world breaks apart into two types of people. There are spenders and there are savers. And so this is what conservative Christians think like. Conservative Christians think in this way. They suppose, oh, you know, the spenders. They're the people that don't love Jesus because they're trying to find their identity in material possessions and so forth. But I, I'm a good Christian. I save my money. His pastor said, don't fool yourselves. He said, everyone is a spender. Some people like to spend money on nice homes and nice cars. But some people like to spend money purchasing financial security. It's a great insight. And he says, don't dichotomize the world into thinking some people are spenders and some people are, are savers. We're all spending money. It's the question of where and how we are spending money. This is why in verse 17, Paul says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This is what Paul is saying, and I think almost every adult here can identify. Every adult, almost every adult has gone through this point in life where he or she supposes, oh, you know what? If I made this much money, if I had this job, then I would be set. Everyone in this room in some shape or form has thought that, right? And what Paul and the Bible are trying to say is, that, again, illustrates the blinding power of money. Because even, even, just imagine this. Maybe some of you in this room, maybe you make several hundred thousand a year. Maybe some of you make a million dollars a year, right? But you know what the Bible says? That doesn't make you any more secure than the person that makes 10,000. Why? Do you have any guarantee tomorrow when you take the metro to work that there won't be a catastrophic accident? There are no guarantees. But you see, with more money, we suppose that we are secure. And that's why Paul says money has this incredible blinding effect on people. Again, we could illustrate it in so many ways, but I want to suggest this application to you. Some of you are sitting here, and you're the more contemplative type. You might be thinking, hmm, this is very interesting. Do I struggle with money? Hmm, right? Let me answer it for you. Yes. Just, uh, just assume you do. 
and instead say, spend your time focusing on how that struggle expresses itself. That will, be, that will serve you very well. But the other point I wanted to make when it comes to uh, the, the, the love of money is that not only is it deceitful, but it is incredibly powerful. Paul already spoke about this, but let me give you a great illustration from the Bible. This, this story always gets me thinking a lot. So do you remember this time Jesus, he's on his way to the cross. He's on his way to the cross, and this rich young ruler comes to him, right? And he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That is a great question. So this young ruler is saying, well, I know I'm going to die because every person's going to die. And I'm smart. I think about the future. I mean, the future, long, long term, eternal. And I, I want I want to know, like, how I can inherit eternal life. Now, after Jesus says a few words, right, he says this of the rich young ruler. And I want you to observe this. Notice how clear Jesus is. Notice how remarkably clear he is. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all your possessions. Give them to the poor. Follow me. And you will have eternal life. In other words, it's like baking cookies. Jesus gives them clear instructions. And he says, you asked me an explicit question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You could not have been clearer. Therefore, I gave you an equally clear answer. This is what you must do. You love your possessions too much. Sell them, give them to the poor, the uh, returns. Follow me and you will have eternal life. And what happens? The rich young ruler walks away. When I look at that story, that is outrageous. Basically, the rich young ruler is saying, hmm, eternal life, eternal glory, or earthly treasure. I think I'm going to go with earthly treasure. You see, friends, that should make us very sober. One other uh, illustration I always think about from the New Testament is when Judas betrays Jesus for 30 shekels, for 30 pieces of silver. You know why that, that's so weird to me? See, even if Judas didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, surely he must have known Jesus was a powerful prophet. And this might be my New York side. I would have thought, even if he's not the Son of God, I wouldn't want to mess with him. You know, that, that's just my, like, that's my thinking, right? But what does he do? He goes, ah, all right, I'll betray him for 30 pieces of silver, right? And what I'm trying to underscore is that money is not only deceitful, it has a unique power over the lives of people. So much so that the Bible doesn't shy from saying you would choose earthly treasure over eternal glory. That should make us very sober, friends. That's what this text is saying. And I hope that even now, some of you are at least feeling the weight of what Paul is saying here. Money has an uncanny ability not just to blind you, right, but to overtake you. So that's number one. Number two, therefore, what are three practical remedies, three concrete remedies, okay? The first is this. This is implicit in this entire passage, right? The first is this. I think we need to be a little bit more measured or a little bit more discerning when it comes to thinking about our future and money. Let me illustrate it in this way. So I'm Asian, 
um, in case you can't tell. And uh, you know, by my last name, uh, it's popularly pronounced as Dr. Jeun. So most people think I'm French, and when I come up, they're very surprised, right? But being of an Asian background, growing up, there were only three jobs that were acceptable in Asian households, right? It's been updated now, but when I was growing up, you could only become three things, a doctor, a lawyer, or a businessman. And I remember telling my mom I wanted to be a teacher, and she's like, cut, cut that nonsense out. <laughs> and now it's been updated. It's still a doctor, it's still a lawyer, but now it's to do something in the tech industry, right? Because, right, growing up at least, the number one deciding factor, right, when it came to selecting a job was what? What the earning potential was, money. Now, I'm not suggesting that money itself, right, is evil. We want to be very clear about this. What Paul is saying here is the love of money, the fixation of money. Nevertheless, I do want to suggest this to you, friends. I think that some of us just think that money is inherently good and having a lot of money is good and we're not thoughtful about it, right? I would suggest to you, right, that the Bible says we should be much more careful in our relationship with money. You know, I, I mentioned to you I have many friends from New York City, right? And this is what's interesting. It's very interesting. Many of them grew up in the church. Many of them did grow up in the church. And many of them, I remember when we were all in high school, we, would, we had this grand master plan. And when I look back, we, we didn't make good on this. So about five of us, this is when we were, quote, unquote, fired up for God. We said, this is the plan. Paul, you go to ministry. Four of us will go into business and we'll make a lot of money. And then we'll support you. To this day, they have not made good on their plans. <laughs> but, no, they're my dear friends, so I'm always making fun of them. However, they will admit this that <laughs> they were not more thoughtful about the way money can change people. And that's what Paul is saying here. <laughs> Parents, you know, to you I especially, I want to encourage this. And those of you who are single and fairly new in your careers, I would approach money a little bit more judiciously. Instead of thinking that money is just great and that as long as you make a lot of money, all will be well, the Bible asks, it challenges us to be a little bit more judicious. Parents, in your conversation with your children, you know, those of you who are new in your careers, right, are you, are you careful to make sure that you're guarding yourself, your children, against a love of money? That's number one. <coughs> number two, we didn't read this, but let me read this on our behalf. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. <coughs> Excuse me. This is what Paul is saying. We have to take very concrete steps to flee the grip of money. We have to be, we have to take very concrete means, right, to flee the gripping power of money. And here I think about something like when Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife. It doesn't say that he stood there and thought, oh, I wonder how long I can withstand this temptation. It says that he ran away from even being tempted, right? And if I can challenge you, I think... This is God's means of grace to us. This is what it can look like for you. And this is what it must look like for you, right? I want to challenge especially those of you who are members of this church, right? The best way to flee the love of money is to let it grow, go, let it go in the form of tithing. Now, as far as pre-tax, post-tax, at this point, 
anything will do, okay, <laughs> for some of you, but I want to encourage you to consider this, right? The way you find liberty and freedom from the power of money, right, is to engage in this ordinary act of obeying the Lord who calls us to give to our local church. And if the statistic holds true, only about 5 to 10% of professing believers actually tithe. Isn't that a scary number? But you know what's also a very encouraging number? Imagine what your church could do if even 90 to 95% of you tithe. Isn't that a beautiful thought, right? Imagine what you could do, right? And if I can, if I can uh, just make a very practical suggestion here. So I have a dear brother at our church, and I love him to death. He's such a spaz. He's such a spaz. He takes 20 minutes to say something that can be said in one minute, but I love him to death. And this is what he said to me. He goes, Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, I am so tired of struggling with tithing every month. He said, e -e every month, every month, I, I have to get my checkbook, I write out my tithe, then I throw out my, I rip it up, I throw it out, I do it like five times. He goes, I'm tired of doing this, I'm tired of doing this. He goes, I've decided to contact my bank so that they can do an automatic payment every month. And I don't even think about it. And I'm just listening, I'm like, mm -hmm, that's good, that's good. And he says, you know, I know. He says this, he goes, I know the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. Sometimes God just loves a giver, right? And he says, and I'll get there. I'll get there someday. And I'm like, that's great. And I said, so your plan is to obey God thoughtlessly? He said, absolutely. And you know, sure enough, what has happened? After two years of doing this, this is what he said to me. He said, you know what? For the longest time, I didn't tithe because I thought, oh, how am I going to manage? How am I going to do this? But now that I've done it thoughtlessly for two years, right, I realize I can manage fine. And God has used my obedience to change me. See, some of you, right, this is what happens. You'll take a verse like uh, from 1 Corinthians, and you're like, huh, the Lord does love a cheerful giver. And I want to obey the Lord. So until he changes my heart and makes me cheerful, I won't do it because I love the Lord. <laughs> That's what money does. It makes us very funny. Let me uh, encourage you in this way. The way God changes us often is through our obedience. He doesn't, he doesn't expect us to be changed and to, then to obey. Often he takes our obedience and changes us. And so, friends, if I can encourage you, if you want to experience freedom from the power of money, God has given us the gift, the privilege to tithe. But finally, concrete step number three. In verse 18, Paul says this. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share. Now, friends, Paul says so much here, but let me um, just make some practical applications here. There are some of you in this room, there are some of you in this room, right, who, who tithe, and to be honest, tithing doesn't affect you all that much in the sense that you can still do everything you want to do, right? There are families who giving away 10% just means that they have, they still have more than enough income to do whatever they want. And this is what Paul says. If that is you, because some of you are like that, what Paul says is that your life should, should be marked by philanthropy and generosity. That's what Paul is talking about. And he says something here that's very important. At the end of verse 18, he says, you must be ready to share. And this is what 
if I can just put it like this, forgive me for using this illustration, but if you know Microsoft Excel, let's say we are making a budget, right? This is what Paul is saying. Don't first do everything you want and then say, well, whatever is left over, maybe I'll give. See, that's very passive. Instead, when Paul says, be ready to share, this is what he's saying. Budget to be generous. Budget to be generous. The way John Piper puts it is this. Live radically below your means so that you have so much more to give. And those are the things that he says here, right? And if I can just give you a general exhortation by a dear professor of mine who passed away recently, he said this. Some of you are sitting here and you might be thinking, huh, okay, I'll think about it. Well, it's not bad. Maybe I'll think about tithing. Maybe I'll be a little bit more judicious when it comes to money. Maybe I'll budget uh, to be generous, right? This is what one of my professors said. It's a great line. He says, you don't change until you change. It sounds so simple, but isn't that so profound? You will never change until you change. You will never change in your relationship with money until you change your relationship with money, right? And the saddest thing would be for you to walk out today and say, that was somewhat stimulating. That was uncomfortable. Glad it's done. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, right? What he said is very helpful. Unless you change, you won't change. But let me tell you, friends, if you change, you will not just change, but you will experience God's goodness in your life in extraordinary ways, which leads me to my third point. Third point, how does the gospel enable us to do this? Because <clears throat> if you're sitting here and you feel very overwhelmed and you're like, wow, this, this is beyond me. I can't do this. I mean, giving away 10% of my income, I mean, that's outrageous. Or budgeting to be generous, I just, I just can't do it, right? I want to ask this important question. How does the gospel uniquely empower us to obey God in this way? Look with me again at chapter 6. Verse 7, we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. Let me read this for us one more time. We brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. This echoes Job's famous statement, naked I came, naked I go. And this is what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the two points in life, when you are born and when you die. And the reason why this verse is included here, it helps us to see, it helps everyone in this room to see why we struggle so much with tithing, why we struggle with so, uh, so much with being generous, and this is why. Deep down, deep down, every person knows he or she is finite, weak, and insignificant. Let me say this one more time, right? The Bible is so sophisticated. It says the reason why you do not tithe, the reason why you are not generous is because in your heart of hearts, you know how weak and vulnerable you are and how insignificant you are. What do we mean by this, right? I have three children, uh, three lovely gremlins, and um, I had a chance to witness only my first son's birth. Um, and I gotta be honest with you, it's nothing like the Hallmark movies. Uh, very graphic and um, the first time just it reminded me uh, 
of a scene from the movie Alien. It, it, was not, it was not majestic by any means. And so I remember my wife saying, do you want to be there for our second one? I said, I'm good. <laughs> so, so, but during uh, the birth of my first son, this is the thing that struck me, how weak and vulnerable he was. He was just completely weak and vulnerable. And then I've had the privilege to be with people in the last few moments of their life. It's a mirror image in many ways of how weak and vulnerable they are and how insignificant they are. Now, I've been with people literally in their last breaths, and they have said, I can't do anything to add one second to my life. And they've said, I wonder if my life has meant anything, right? You see, how does this relate to money? You see, we begin vulnerable, somewhat insignificant, and we end in that way. And so the natural human tendency is, I feel so afraid. Let me look for security. I feel so insignificant. So let me buy things, right, that make me feel significant. See, friends, this is why money has such a powerful grip on us. Because it offers us the prospect of security and significance. You see, that's why you struggle with tithing, right? You don't struggle with tithing necessarily because you're just thinking, I don't want to do it. This is what you're thinking. You're thinking, but if I tithe, hmm, how am I going to pay this bill? How am I going to be able to save my, for my children's college? Because the cost of college keeps going up. If I am generous with others, how am I going to buy this car that makes me feel good? This clothing that makes me feel successful. You see, it's not money isn't just money. We look at it as our ultimate hope for security and significance. That's why Paul is mentioning this verse. He says, that's why money has such a powerful grip on us. And that's why, dear friends, apart from the gospel, we can never change in this way. Do you know what the gospel says to us? You and I say, naked I came into this world. But we have an almighty God. And friends, this is the good news. Second person of the Trinity, the eternal one. He was glorious, he was powerful, and he was rich. Do you know what the gospel says to us? He became weak like you and me. He became vulnerable like you and me. He became poor like you and me. Do you know why? So that in turn, we might become powerful, we might become rich, and so that our lives might be filled with hope. See, this is what is so extraordinary about the gospel. Jesus says, I know in your heart of hearts, you are afraid. I know, right, you feel insecure. I know you feel insignificant. But look at me. I came. I was rich, but I became poor so that you might have eternal riches. I became weak. I became vulnerable. I even submitted myself to death so that you might have eternal life. Do you want significance? Now you are counted as a son or a daughter of God. Do you want security? This is what Romans says to us. God is for you. If God did not withhold his only son, will he not graciously give us all things in him? This is why, dear friends, the thing that you are looking for, which every human, if you're normal, you're looking for. If you're looking for security, you're looking for significance, and that is perfectly right, except you're looking for it in the wrong places. You're looking for it in money, a false idol, 
instead of looking to Jesus, our one true Savior and our one true hope. Dear friends, if you believe in the gospel, it is the gospel that will free you to tithe and to be generous because your security no longer rests in your money, but in the true master, Jesus Christ. Your significance is not in where you go, whether you can post on Instagram that you went on this vacation and so forth, whether you have a house of a certain size. Your significance comes from being known by the eternal one. And only because of the gospel, and when the gospel works itself out in your life, you can, you will become generous. If I, if I can close with an invitation and an exhortation. So let me begin with the invitation. There are some of you in this room who do not yet count yourself a follower of Jesus. And first I want to say this. Thank you so much for coming. I have many non-Christian friends, and uh, it's never easy to go to a church. You know, even things like, what should we wear? How should I? <laughs> you know, it's not easy, right? And here, this is what I want to say to you. This church and any gospel preaching church is not about trying to get your money. Let me just assure you of that. If you're here, right, please hear this. The gospel is about freedom, freedom. And if you begin to take a step towards trusting Jesus, right, this is what will happen. You will actually experience freedom from the power of money. And it, you know what it's like? It's like awakening to breathing in fresh air. And so if you are here, I don't even want to focus you on tithing and being generous if, if you don't count yourself a believer. I want to invite you to consider the gospel, to look at Jesus and to take hold of eternal life. And so if that is you, I want to extend that invitation. But for those of you who are believers, if I can offer this very strong exhortation, look with me one more time at chapter 5, verse 8. I think about this verse actually quite a bit. <laughs> Look at chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, what does Paul say here? He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Dear friends, let me conclude in this way. I say this as a fellow sojourner. I, I do not say this uh, speaking with an air of authority and so forth in the sense that I think I am better than anyone in this room. But one of the principles that Paul is bringing out here is this. For those of you who profess to follow Jesus, right? If your profession of faith is not substantiated, it is not evidenced by your relationship with money, at the very least, you ought to pause and consider whether Jesus is truly your Lord and Savior. I, in no way am I suggesting, in no way am I suggesting that our generosity saves us. Let me be very clear about this. In no way am I suggesting if you tithe, then you will go to heaven. But what I am saying this, right? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will be generous. That's what the Bible is saying. You see, one of the things that's so helpful about this teaching on tithing, generosity, and money in general 
is it helps you to see the true nature of your faith. And so if you are sitting here and you are a faithful tither, you are very generous, rejoice in the fact that those things evidence God's work in your life. Those things evidence, right, that you have put your trust in the Lord. But if you are sitting here and that is not you, on this day, I want to call you to repentance. I want to challenge you, repent. Turn to the Lord and admit, you know, Lord, I have said that you are my Savior, but in reality, money has been my security. I now repent, I turn away, and now I look to you and therefore obey you, right, in the form of tithing and being generous. I want to invite you, dear friends, let's honor the Lord. Let's see the gospel go forth by looking to Jesus as the only source of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this is a very difficult topic. And yet we see throughout your ministry that you never shied from addressing real and difficult topics. First, I want to pray for those in this room who, who may not believe in you as their hope of salvation. I pray that the gospel would soften their hearts. We came into this world naked and we will leave naked. But you also came into this world naked, but you were resurrected in glory so that our life story might change. If there are individuals here who have yet to believe in the Lord, I pray that they would continue to attend this wonderful church. They would connect with the pastors and the elders and that they would join communities so that in due time, they would come to trust in the Lord. God, I also pray for those individuals in this room who are faithfully giving to their local church those individuals in this room who aspire to grow in generosity. I pray that as they go deeper into the glories of Calvary, that they would continue to be obedient, that they would continue to tithe, that they would continue to be generous. And finally, I do pray especially for those who profess faith, for those who claim that Jesus is Lord of their lives. I pray that this would be a day of renewal and repentance that they would see, even though I have professed faith, my functional trust is still in money. I pray that they would turn away from this false God, that they would turn to the true and living God, and that their repentance would be expressed in the form of tithing and generosity. And in this way, through this ordinary act of obedience, would the gospel go forth in this church. In Christ's name we pray.